Good morning. My name is Terry LeBlanc, and I'm the Executive Director for Indigenous Pathways and the Director for NATES, an Indigenous Learning Community. And I have the privilege of being with you this morning to share a little bit from uh, text during this Lenten season that uh, I've been invited to speak on, and uh, in hopes that uh, we might learn some things together uh, from this text in our current context. Before I do, let me offer a, a short prayer. Father, for the gift of this day, we are grateful for the things that you bring forth from the earth by your hand for our provision, for shelter and nourishment, clothing and sustenance, friends and family, relatives, opportunities. We're grateful for the things both seen and unseen, all of which come from your provision. We are grateful. Our prayer this morning is that we might find in this text, in our current context, uh, a new thought or idea about how we might live in a better way with one another in this community of humanity and in the rest of this creation. To that end, I pray your spirit would guide us, lead us in uh, new ways to understand new things for new purposes in a new time. Thank you that you're scriptures have been handed down over these many centuries uh, faithfully from one community of followers of Jesus to another, um, that this narrative might be our narrative into which we insert the story of our own lives. Help us to that end, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been invited to speak from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 23, and verse 23 and 24. And for those of you who know the text uh, or have read the text as a part of this uh, Lenten season, you know that it's a part of the woes to the Pharisees. It's part of the uh, invitation, a uh, very confronting invitation to the Pharisees to consider their thinking and their actions in ways that they perhaps had not. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices of mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. I'd like to set the stage for this this morning with a story I've told many times, and for those of you who may have heard me speak elsewhere and have heard this story, you'll know that it is uh, a rooted story in my life and one that I come back to with great regularity. It's a story of cultural perspective, to be sure, both rural and, uh, in many respects, indigenous. But it also sets the tone for a different theological trajectory than the one more common to the Western Church's notions of relationship and reconciliation. And certainly this passage, this text, invites us to think differently about relationship and about the way in which 
God expects us to live. The story I want to tell you is rooted in a a soteriology that has relationship at its core. The idea that we as human beings are to live in right relationship with God, the one who made us, with the spiritual powers that are part of this world, and that may shake some of you up a little bit, um, but I just want you to think about spiritual powers, spiritual forces of wickedness in high places as just one example of spiritual interplay in this world that we're a part of that we sometimes overlook, and in overlooking it may inadvertently become victim to it, or even more tragically and inadvertently seeking to or accidentally serving it. And so we're to live in right relationship with God and other spiritual powers, and we're to live in right relationship with one another in the human community, and of course, we're to live in right relationship with and right relatedness to the rest of the creation that we're a part of. And so this story is set in that kind of a context, if you will. When I was a young boy, my grandfather, father, and I traveled some distance from our home uh, to go fishing at a spot known only to my grandfather. You know one of those kinds. Perhaps somebody in your family fishes. Maybe you do. And you have a spot that is your own, that only you know about. Well, this was one of those spots. Having driven as far as the roads would take us, we got out of my grandfather's old beater And gathering up our gear, we set out on the trail toward this favorite fishing spot. We soon found ourselves in the middle of a deep and dark woods, making our way along a narrow trail, where with each passing step, the way ahead and behind became less and less perceptible. On more than a few occasions, I expressed my concern to my grandfather, and at each occasion I did, he sought to reassure me. Finally, unable to hold my anxiety fearful about what lay ahead of us, even more anxious that the way back would never again be found, I tugged frantically on my grandfather's arm. Grandfather, grandfather, I cried out, we'll be lost, we'll be lost. Sensing the rising fear in me, my grandfather knelt down and after reassuring me more fully, taught me a lesson, one that stuck with me and guided me in my thinking and actions from that day to this. In the mixture of languages that was his habit of speech, he told me that each new trail we take could seem like it leads along to an uncertain path. The way back can seem unclear and obscured by the landscape. But, he said, when you set out on a new trail, if you spend twice as much of your time looking over your shoulder at where you have come from as you do where you're going, If you fix the landmarks behind you in your mind the way that they will appear to you when you turn to take the trail back, you will never become lost, and you will always be able to find your way home. Now that day, my grandfather gave me the ability to find my way to and from all of the various destinations in life that would lie before me, all of which, as I set out on each new trail, were initially unknown. Contemporary societies, not just North American, are no longer used to looking at where they've come from. They're far more fixated on an as-yet-unknown and unknowable future, on what comes next. Rather than use the past to help determine where they are on the trail of life in relation to where they started, they plunge ahead frequently blindly, expecting that the future will correct any mistakes they make in their navigation.
Now, as far as back as 1973, Dr. Carl Menninger, some of you may know him as the second wave of psychoanalytic uh, school of thought uh, following Freud. Uh, Menninger quoting Daniel Burstyn, the director of the National Museum of Science and Technology, noted this. We have lost our sense of history, lost our traditional respect for the wisdom of ancestors and the culture of kindred nations. We haunt ourselves with the illusory ideal of some whole nation, which had a deep and outspoken faith in its values. Now, that may not make much sense to you, but Menninger went on from there to say that this loss was deeply rooted in the now well-established human ability to ignore various kinds of behavior when it's politically, economically, or socially expedient. It was clear that euphemisms had replaced more incisive vocabularies and terminology had become more socially managed, more soothing of the individual and collective conscience. And isn't that precisely what we see in this text? Isn't that precisely what the Pharisees, the keepers of the law, were being condemned for. They had allowed tradition, which had originally had a rootedness, a pragmatic rootedness in a necessity to create a good relational framework between themselves and God, between one another in the human community, and with the rest of the creation they were part of, and they had established fences. Not, not using these principles for guidance, for a sense of where they were and where they are, but rather as a fence around the law, uh, a fence that ensured that they wouldn't transgress it, but also ensured that they would no longer see it as a means to establishing or maintaining good relationships. So, so this terminology became socially managed, the terminology of the law. Uh, oh, we need to tithe of everything that we have, and oh gosh, now that we've done that, mom, dad, uh, folks, we, we, we don't have anything that we can give to you because we're, we've tithed everything. We've given it all. And in, in doing this kind of thing, the Pharisees have invalidated the very purposes for which these principles were articulated and given. The idea that they would be made provision for others in their tithing, whether just the priests and Levites in some cases, or um, a storehouse of goods to provide for the needs of others in matters of famine or loss. Menninger observed that this deferral was focused through the lens of an unrealistic, unrealistic expectation that whatever we broke or damaged uh, now uh, or in the past, we'd fix it in the future. We don't need to worry about it. Let's just leave it alone. Let's move on into the future, and we'll get it fixed then. Uh, all of the complications that emerge from that will be fixed then. But, you know, it really only takes a brief examination of history to know that this doesn't typically happen. Rather than the passage of time dealing with the consequences of the initial behavior or problem, one of two things happens. The behavior gradually becomes normative, or it compounds. Further complexity will accrue to it, and, to turn the biblical phrase, the last estate becomes worse than the first. 
this new, more compounded possession, uh, demonic or otherwise, uh, is a reference to an essential state of unrepented sin. And and when we look at the text that we're that we're that we're examining today, when we look at the text, the issue here is not whether or not they kept the law. I mean, if you stop to think of the rich young ruler, sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Uh, you need to keep all the commandments. Well, I've done that from my youth up. Well, one thing you lack. Go and sell the things you have and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. See, he'd kept the law. So it wasn't about the law. It wasn't about precepts or principles. It wasn't about our doctrine or our statements of faith. It was about relationship. He had done everything the law required, but without the right purpose or intent for doing so. He had neglected the weightier measures, the measures that led to relationship and relatedness that allowed health and well-being to emerge. So the last estate of that young man became worse than the first because as he walked away, his head hung. You can see him today. You could see him today. Walking away from Jesus, his head hung down, unable to comprehend what it would require of him to give everything that he had to go and follow Jesus. To be in right relationship was going to demand all. He kept the law, but that was not the point. This new, more compounded reality was an unrepentant sin, but it was a sin of a lack of willingness to engage in right relationship with people and with God. It's interesting that the book in which Carl Menninger quotes Daniel Boorstin has the telling title. And remember, Menninger is a psychoanalyst of the school that thinks deeply about the, the, the matters that trouble the human spirit, the human soul, the human mind, and seeks to address them. But in this matter, Manager is quite clear in the title of his book when he said, whatever became of sin. You see, the Pharisees and the keepers of the law here, in this text today, in this text this morning, are clearly not interested in relationship, even with their relatives, their friends, their family, their very parents. They're interested in keeping these legal principles. So, so as we're thinking about our current context, as I was setting about to prepare this, the events of Ukraine had not yet begun to unfold. But as they began to unfold, I found myself thinking back to 2014 and the, the news reporting in these last weeks of 2022 of the invasion of Russia and 25 days ago, imagining the amassing of troops on the border of Ukraine by Russia as portending an invasion to come and the questions would Russia invade? And I found myself thinking, but they already have. The Crimea in 2014 was already 
an invasion. And the amassing of troops along the border and the support of insurgent groups within Ukraine was already an invasion. And, and don't misunderstand my use of this example, this current example in the news. I'm simply pointing to the fact that if we were to carefully examine mid-20th century history, we would see that similar events and ideas and attitudes had emerged there. And then Germany, and the Anschluss, and then the subsequent moves upon other European nations were not dissimilar to the Russian annexation of Crimea and now it's a massing of troops on the border in preparation for an invasion, which, of course, over these past weeks, we realize now know to be a reality. See, they hadn't looked at where they'd come from. Our, our, our allies, our friends, our leadership, well, yeah, they kind of knew, but they hadn't carefully examined where we had come from so as to perhaps more fully understand where we were so that we'd have a better sense of what might unfold in the days that lie ahead. When Manager talks about whatever became of sin, and he, and he speaks of it with respect to an inability to assess our history well, where we've come from, where we are as a result of that, it reminded me of my grandfather's teaching. Let us spend twice as much time of our uh, twice as much of our time looking over our shoulder at where we've come from, as we do where we're going. That way, we'll understand where we are in our journey, and more importantly, we'll understand when it comes time to turn around and take the trail home how to get there, because the landmarks will make sense. According to Menninger, by 1973, the field of clinical psychology had witnessed the collapse of any sense in which humans actually sinned. Now, I'm not suggesting that the Christian church had vacated that thinking. I'm simply saying that general society had stepped back from the idea of sin to this idea that they were victims of consequence, victims of circumstance, Victims of their child-rearing, victims of their parents' inability to care for them properly as children, victims of increasing numbers of behaviors or attitudes began to be described more inoffensively with the language of developmental psychology and other uh, humanities. Paul Witz in this same period, described this shift in human thought away from a creator to whom they were accountable to the moving target of a generic humanist spirituality with psychiatry as its priesthood, as a deeply religious shift that we were in the middle of at that time in 1972 and 73. And one can imagine that we've moved significantly down the road from there. In the same way that these Pharisees and teachers of the law had moved a huge distance down the trail from the original giving of the law and its purposes to maintain right relationship with God, right relationship with one another in the human community, and right relationship with the rest of the creation they were a part of, 
humanity had moved down the trail toward a different understanding of their responsibility to one another and to God. In this shift in human thought away from a creator to whom they were accountable, they'd moved to this humanistic spirituality, and you've probably heard it, I'm spiritual but not religious. And a part of that roots in the idea that there is no desire to be significantly accountable one to another for human behavior, even spiritual behavior. The social evolutionary language used to perform this double duty of condemning the behavior of the original perpetrators while simultaneously assuaging the conscience of the contemporary beneficiaries ran unchecked. And people began to take advantage of the outcomes of misbehavior while at the same time as refusing to take responsibility for participating in it. And of course, if we examine not simply in this text, but in other texts that Jesus engages the Pharisees with, Jesus inevitably says, at some point, you have heard that it was said, and then he would explicate a particular teaching or perhaps an element of the law or of God's expectations, and then he would say this, but I say unto you, and then he will go on to elucidate what that text should have led them toward, the behavior they should actually be demonstrating instead of what they were. And in so doing, inevitably, Jesus points toward relationship. And the purpose of these principles, these tenets, the ideas, these laws, is that we might be in right relationship. That's the focus. That's the purpose not just for the sake of keeping the law. So if we bring it into the contemporary, I don't know the church setting that you are in at the moment. The church is unfamiliar to me. But there will be principles and ideas that you use in your congregation to structure activities ways of behaving toward one another, and so forth. Some of them you might call doctrine. Some of them might be articulated in a statement of faith. Some of them might be articulated in principles that you're responsible to keep for legal purposes um, as a charitable uh, corporation um, in Canada. And there might be other purposes or principles or ideas that are part of uh, what structures and frames your church. They're not bad in and of themselves. I wouldn't suggest that they are. However, if those principles, those precepts, those ideas themselves are the focus of your behavior, keeping them for the sake of themselves, not for the sake of them leading towards better relationships with one another, not moving us toward living in a better way with one another, then they're not very valid. In fact, they may be a hindrance. Now, don't go away and say, that LeBlanc guy, he said, don't worry about doctrine. Don't worry about principles. Don't worry. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, don't elevate those things to such a high standard 
that you lose sight of the fact that we as human beings created in God's image and God's likeness are in this place to be in right relationship with God. There is but one creator. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, the Lord is one. It's a refrain from Deuteronomy. And it's one we're expected to keep. The Lord is one. We're to be in right relationship with that one. We're also to be in right relationship with spiritual powers. Now again, many people in the Western Church don't necessarily comprehend that or think about it. If they do, perhaps they make the sign of the cross and, and, and want to fend off evil spirits. But there are spiritual powers at play in our world, some of which we might, we might attribute to uh, behaviors that are related to greed or lust or some other kind of uh, um, moral behavior. But whether there are those things that are spiritually destructive or whether they're actually spirits, the counterparts of cherubim, seraphim, angels, there are spiritual forces at play in our world. And we're to be in right relationship with them, neither to worship or serve them, nor to seek them to worship or serve us. So, be in right relationship with God and with other spiritual powers. These are, the, these are the expectations. Be in right relationship with one another in the human community. Legal and moral principles are not enough. Action that we take based on our principles, based on our understandings, are of critical importance. Here I see James coming to the fore. You say that you have faith? And you can articulate your statement of faith and your doctrinal principles? Okay, but let me see what you do. Your actions speak more loudly than your words. Finally, we're to be in right relationship and right relatedness with the rest of the creation of which we are a part. And we need to be clear about that. We're a part of this creation. We're not above it and outside of it at a distance from it. We are integrally connected to it. We are interdependent with it, interrelated to the rest of the creation, interconnected to it. Whatever happens to the rest of the creation impacts us and vice versa. We're to be in right relationship with the rest of the creation. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 8 that the creation is groaning. In travail, uses the image of the woman in childbirth to say creation is groaning in travail, awaiting its own redemption, even as we also do. Further, he says, the creation is groaning, awaiting the revelation of the sons and daughters of God. I added daughters there. Just thought you ladies should know that you're also included in this. And Paul further says, when we don't know how to pray, the same Spirit interceding in groanings within the rest of creation intercedes in us, uh, intercedes in us with groanings too deep for words to express when we're not sure how to pray. So the Pharisees sometimes got it wrong, kept the law, but missed the relationship. 
kept the principles and the precepts, but were distanced from the very people, in fact, from God, God's self, for whom those principles and precepts were set in place to ensure relationship was good. May God grant us the ability today and in the days ahead to live in a much better way with one another, not through keeping the law, but rather allowing the law to guide us, allowing principles and ideas to guide us into right relationship, one with another, with God, and with the creation we're a part of. Thank you for allowing me to be with you. May God bless and give you a great day.